We are recording this on the eve of La Vispera de San Lázaro, December 16th. It's almost his feast day. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Indaram Lau. I am a Cuban-American junior at Emory. And in terms of my religiosity, I was raised Christian, but like many other Cuban-Americans, I also practice in a bit of the Santeria, especially San, San Lázaro, Babaloye, the main figure of this podcast. And hello, my name is America, and I am also another student from Emory University. I'm currently a junior. And um, did I already say I'm Mexican-American? Well, I am. And I'm also Catholic. Uh, I was raised very culturally Catholic. We did not go to mass as much, so we're not that devoted. But I did end up going to Sunday classes very often. So I know a lot about um, what it's like to, to be surrounded by a lot of Catholicism and prayers. So one of the main reasons why me and Indar are having this conversation is because, well, we're very passionate about culture, uh, especially with our own um, identities. Both Indar and I actually took a couple of classes of Latin American Caribbean studies together. And one of the things that seemed natural for us to talk about was musical aspects with um, culture. So one of the things that allowed us or I guess inspired us to do this project is that when we first went to Oxford, one of the classes that we took with Professor Valomino was a class on Latin American, you know, globalization and transculturation within music. Um, obviously, music is a huge part of culture and reflects the culture that it's created in and also influences at the same time. Uh, Professor Valomino was a huge inspiration for this project and served as an amazing resource for insight on not just the discussion of music, but also his own opinions on what was going on, what we were discussing in terms of things like primitivism, uh, the idea of music being complex versus it being, I guess, simple, simplistic, and how those kind of terms tend to are, are very problematic in their nature because they tend to reflect that Western music is viewed as inherently complex while non-Western music is viewed as inherently simple or, or base. So the following audio will be an interview and conversation that we had with Professor Palomino. We discussed two songs that we've chosen. Um, Babaluaye by Ovaire and Viejo Lázaro by Danden. Both of these are made by conjuntos, uh, smaller bands. And unfortunately, there's not much information on them online. But through Spotify, uh, we were able to listen to the songs. I also realized as I listened back to the audio, I actually did not speak much throughout the conversation, uh, mostly because I was so entranced by the conversation. I felt very heartwarming to hear. Um, Palomino's way of interpreting music once again and although I personally did love the music that we were listening to it felt very familiar and nostalgic to me I felt that the conversation and interactions that uh, both Indar and Professor Palomino were having was much more was much more informative than whatever I could say about the music itself thank you Dr. Palomino for meeting with us today I think before we begin, if you want to give a quick introduction so that the rest of the class, when they listen to this, knows and you know what who you are, what you've studied, and how you got into this point. Bueno, hi, uh, in that in America, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, I am a historian. I was trained as a historian in in Argentina, my my native country, and in the U.S. in California. Um, and I am. I have. I have always been a music like fan, and mm. sometimes a practitioner, always a listener. 
And I decided to integrate music in my own professional practice as a researcher, mm -hmm. as a teacher. That's why the classes I teach in, in Latin American and Caribbean studies at Oxford mm -hmm. um, include a lot of music. And music, uh, as you guys know, is, is not just, I mean, it sounds, but it's also harmonies and melodies and rhythms. And it's like lyrics and it's entire like ideologies and worldviews and histories. So from multiple parts of what music is, I, mm. I try to understand Latin America, the Caribbean, and, and you know, global history in general. Mm. And so I think one of the things that we, that I remember a lot about your, your class, you know, like focusing specifically on music was the discussion of how music represents this idea of like transculturation and how, especially in certain places where there are so many different influences, the sound of music can change so wildly. And I think a great example of that is a lot of Cuban music can have its roots in African rhythms and things like salsa, where you, you'll hear certain drums that you're like, this was not a, a, a European um, influence. But then at the same time, aside from just Spanish as a language, there are also like, the tres and, and string instruments that are very common in the Caribbean that, and, and Cuba that definitely came from Europe and definitely have their influences there. So I think you said that you listened to the two songs that, we, that we're focusing on. I think that you can see a very clear difference in the way that those two songs start and sound, the way that they play into each other. Um, Babaluaye sounds very much like a very simplistic three, maybe three drums and just vocals. And I think that that gets at a very different feeling than something that has a lot of brass, a lot of strings, and is a salsa song, like a much more clear, oh, you're meant to dance to this, you're meant to listen to this. So I was wondering if you could talk maybe about like musical aesthetics and if you feel like there are certain sounds or certain things that, you know, get at a certain emotion more than others. And that this can be about these two songs or just in general, how certain songs can sound more European and certain songs can sound different. Yes. Um... That it's not by chance that the concept that you mentioned in that mm -hmm. transculturation was coined by a by a Cuban anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Not yeah. you know, it could have been a Colombian or a Mexican, but it was a Cuban anthropologist because mm -hmm. there's something in Cuba, I think, that that lends this process like make, makes it more evident. Mm -hmm. And I think going to your specifically to your question, you know, the idea of simplicity and complexity in music. Mm -hmm. Uh, th those ideas are, are already debated, have been mm -hmm. debated for a long, mm -hmm. long time, especially since uh, people, listeners, critics, musicians themselves started to openly criticize the traditional idea that uh, European music is sophisticated, it requires mm -hmm. study, it's complex, mm -hmm. whereas non-European musics, like, for example, African musics or, or native musics are like simple, more primitive. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, when you see, uh, when you listen to uh, apparently simple, primitive music, like non-written mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. uh, and you see the the the, the skills mm -hmm. and the intuition and creativity and coordination it requires yeah. from musicians who maybe had not been, you know, to the Royal Conservatory of Music in in London, <laughs> or, yeah, and I mean, there's. It's, it's, it's no less, no more simple or sophisticated than, you know, a yeah. work by Johann Sebastian Bach, I don't know, just mm -hmm. for, to put like a big name. No? Oh, no, no. 
So, but however, as you point out correctly, in these two examples, we see that uh, what we call Cuban music or Afro-Cuban music, mm -hmm. it operates at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from contexts like the first one in which it's, of course, it's a recording, so these are musicians performing, yeah. but the the apparent simplicity and the, the very style of the drumming and the singing, it suggests kind of like a ceremony. Mm -hmm. It suggests some, a song that is embedded or is driving a ritual. Mm -hmm. And therefore is, you know, one more example of how music is not just music, but music in this case is communion, religion, communication mm -hmm. with one another and with gods, like petitions to, to divine mm -hmm. powers, yeah. no connection with ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, so there's something in, 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 the, in the, the apparent simplicity of that first song that makes you feel like you are not with like expert musicians, yeah. with the makers of the ritual. No? Yeah, yeah. Like people who are meaning what they do, of course. not just to play good music, but to to communicate something, to, to operate yeah. something in the world. Because, uh, I mean, Santeria is, is that, no? The music mm -hmm. and the dancing and everything is to bring something. I mean, to bring good health or, or bad health or to, you know, to prepare for war, for love. Mm -hmm. But the music is intended to change something, not mm -hmm. just to please the ear. Yeah. Whereas in the, in the other case, uh, the other is like a, it's a, great, a great example. I didn't know this orchestra in particular. In particular. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, there are so many in Cuba, this amazing, super, yeah. like, cool, cool in the sense of, like, jazz orchestras or, or you know, it's yeah. like modern, very virtuoso, mm -hmm. and very, and also, but at the same time, not just virtuoso for mere skillful playing, but uh, sincere and, and touching kind of music. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. When, as you say, in that, it has, like, multiple instruments, and it's like, yeah. Very like overwhelming, no? In a good yeah. sense. Yeah. It, it gets you from everywhere. Yeah, I think I think something that that I really like about so for an example, um, every feast day, every December, and about like the jump from the 16th to the 17th is the day that you is about the time when like the the rituals for San Lazaro begin. What you do is like uh, I, I don't have the word in English, but the desponja, like you clean yourself. Um, it's a thing in Espiritismo. It also happens in Santeria, but the idea of like cleaning off what the the year has brought and beginning a new year. Um, at the if if you're not aware, Babaluaye or San Lazaro takes the it has control of of viruses and diseases and things mm. of that nature. And when you look at San Lazaro, images of San Lazaro, he's an old man with dogs licking at his wounds. He's 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 hurt. He's damaged. Um, but at the but it's interesting to think about how we how. In my head, I had never heard Babaluaye, the song by Olaide, when we did these these things. I always heard the Danden song, Viejo Lázaro. And I think that's really interesting given, like you said, Babaluaye gets at a more ritualistic nature. It touches on something. This song isn't necessarily not the music. At the end of the day, it is music. and It is, it is like for the ears, but it's almost like you listening to it is like, a side effect that you like that's not the main purpose for this music it's it's for the ritual it's for the contacting 
And I think that it also something that's really interesting. I want I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. I about a minute and forty seconds into Yeho Lazaro is when you first hear Babalua Ye. It's after he's listed a few other Orisha. Viejo um, Lazaro, minute 40, you said? Around around there. I'm not 100% sure. It should be like a minute 30, minute 40. Give me one second. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to 130. Yeah. These are all Santos, or Orishas. Well, de hecho, sorry, in fact, they are mentioning like Shango. Yeah, yeah, they're Mira, mentioning all the Orishas, yeah. yeah. Several Orishas, exactly. But it, I, I think it's interesting given it takes it takes a minute 30 or a minute, you know, about, about a minute and a half to get to this point in that song where they list Lázaro by his African Orisha's name. And then almost kind of as a, like a response, Babalu Aye takes two minutes and about 20 seconds to finally say San Lázaro, so mentioned in by uh -huh. his Catholic European name. And I always thought, I always think that's really interesting because obviously these songs came out at different times and they exist in different places. A lot of the themes that you'll hear in these in this music are hundreds of years old. Like you said, yeah. they're not written, they're not orchestrated, they're they're just orally been passed down. But it's so interesting how in a recording, I can't seem to take my mind off the fact that like they, it's, it, they waited, they both waited to give you the, the alternative version of what the name can be. Um, I know in our book, we have a hmm. book here. Hang on one second. <laughs> we, we, we weren't able to share this with you, but this is a book by a Baba, Baba um, but, but, uh, somebody like a practitioner. Uh -huh. And in this book, he's, he calls San Lazaro Babalua's Catholic disguise. He doesn't call what, him like a... What, what kind of disguise, sorry? A Catholic disguise. Catholic, claro, claro. And instead of saying like a syncretism or, or a religious changing, he calls him a disguise. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think that it gets at a point that like Cuban culture and society and music, everything that makes it so unique is this, this mix that's maybe not as prevalent in, in Central and South America, but is extremely prevalent in the Caribbean, which is like, there is this inherent um, well, in Africanidad. Brazil, in Brazil, Brazil there are too. many Yoruba. Yes. yes. Like Yemanja is important, mm -hmm. Shango mm -hmm. is important. Yeah, Ogun as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. But it's, it's, I think it's very interesting, like the the inherent Africanidad of 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 certain places in Latin America versus others, and I think that it's very clear how these influences can be taken, I guess, can be detached from one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that you touched on in our class a lot is that because of these like decades and centuries of of, of mixing and and mm -hmm. coexistence, even if it is built on upon a very problematic power structure it inevitably you end up with a new thing there is no longer a like oh this is this is european and this is african it's now just this is what it is this is latin america this is mm -hmm. what being latino or latinx is mm -hmm. so well, i thought that was really interesting should i respond to this yeah, 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 america, yeah. you want to see okay yeah. <laughs> bueno eh... Exactly. You see, you know, you just use the, the, the term Latinx, which has nothing to do with Yoruba yeah. tradition or with Cuban Catholicism, or you know, it's you are you just added an, a new layer of interpretation mm -hmm. of a new of a cultural practice mm -hmm. based on your your subjectivity, your experience in mm -hmm. 
the U.S. in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so music has that, that like, uh, yeah, that ability to the, to to incorporate mm-hmm. layers and layers of meaning mm-hmm. um, without losing the old ones necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I mean, what you say. I mean, I don't. I'm. I'm I will just like <laughs> paraphrase what you say. Uh, yeah. which is yes this is a good example of uh the second song by the danden a good example of how music can be at the same time or successively within the same song a, a piece of dance music something that you listen to and you just want to enjoy and dance mm-hmm. and then without noticing it you you're you're, you're already into a ritual when where you are like mm-hmm appealing to the gods mm-hmm. um, and it feels like it's, it's the same song the song hasn't mm-hmm. stopped the rhythm is the same mm-hmm. and and that's I, I think that's the brilliancy of of, of popular music in, in the case mm-hmm. of, of of cuba the mm-hmm. ability to tie the two things together like the mm-hmm. fun the dance the, you know the dance is an important social uh, tool yeah. for creating community for finding a partner for making friends for being part of you know yeah, of a, of, a, of a place, of a town mm-hmm. to belong. Also to express differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and yeah, inadvertently, it becomes part of a tradition that has centuries mm-hmm. of this conflation of Catholicism and Yoruba beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and yes, uh, it, Catholicism is a disguise. Uh, you know, Catholicism is, is in fact a, a form of a disguised polytheism mm-hmm. because it has so many saints and so many figures to adore, mm-hmm. starting for the Trinity, right? Yeah. Because God and the Spirit and Son and Jesus, which mm-hmm. is a man, but it's a God. And then his mother, and then, you know, all the saints and apostles, and, and then all the tons of saints that in multiple parts of the world popped up mm-hmm. in the past 2000 years mm-hmm. um so you can as a believer you can entertain relationships with any of these powers mm-hmm. in that sense i my impression is that there's kind of a a very um like like a structural Compatibility between Catholic European Catholicism and Yoruba religion, mm-hmm. and like very yes, and in fact, you know they encountered each other in Cuba, but in fact they had been relating to each other more indirectly in the mm-hmm. old world. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we uh, Caribbeans or or Americans, mm-hmm. uh, and people we're people from the New World, let's say. Mm-hmm. Although some of our ancestors are not, as, as we yes. have talked about this, but uh, in terms of our culture here, not like growing up in Mexico or the US or Cuba or Argentina, you're like, well, this is the new. Now, when you look at Nigeria or West Africa and the Mediterranean world, they have been exchanging beliefs, trade, war, migrations, ideas, texts, sounds, music for millennia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it would. We would need to maybe ask some expert in West mm-hmm. African religions and their relations with mm-hmm. with Mediterranean religions, mm-hmm. pre and post Catholic or Christian. 
Um, so my point is that it's not it's not a coincidence that Yoruba and Catholicism are so are, are so like easy to to connect. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you said, this is about the, the history of our world, our new world, this is history of oppression, among other things. And yeah, evidently music was like a key tool for people to make sense of that oppression, to fight it somehow, resist it, or accommodate themselves with it, mm -hmm. survive to pass on certain ideas or attitudes. Mm -hmm. and, and and I think I love when, when these songs, songs like this too that you guys share, uh, refer to things that are so simple. So mm -hmm. like that, it's not that you need like uh, to be a theologian or to read the Bible or to be mm -hmm. initiated in the mysteries of West African religions to, to just find a little bit of mystery and, 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 and enticement yeah. in, in, in these fields of the, the candles and the, and the praise and, the, and these numbers. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of the, the, the magical, magical in a good sense, in the, you know, the transcendent world of everyday people. In mm -hmm. this case, I, I guess, well, Afro-Cubans, no? Or Cubans mm -hmm. in general, because you don't need to be Afro-Cuban to participate yeah. in this world. Of course. Yeah? I think I think that gets at something. I'll, I'm going to touch back on the Catholicism point that you were talking about, but especially on that on that idea of, like, you don't necessarily need to be fully, um, fully indoctrinated or fully understand every single moving part of, of, of these religions. But there is this sense, and I think especially in Cuban culture to like la rumba te está llamando like you're being <laughs> called by something and that's something that you'll hear like Celia, Celia, Celia Cruz used to always say that in songs she, like a bunch of songs that she would say that in but it's there's this sense of like there's a, an inherent root there's an inherent draw to something mm -hmm. and you don't have to have the your full family tree to, to see where this goes but because of your identity and because of your being from Cuba there's a, ultimately this sense of like yeah, there is something calling you. And I think that that's something that only music can do. La rumba, well, music also can separate and hier uh, create hier mm -hmm. hierarchies and impose distinctions. Mm -hmm. But in this case, this idea, la rumba te está llamando, means the rumba is just calling you everyone. Mm -hmm. It's not that all oh, rumba is taking a test or doing mm -hmm. auditions or rumba is checking the color of your skin or mm -hmm. what's your last name or... Mm -hmm. How well or bad you dance? No, mm -hmm. Rumba is saying everyone. Let's get together. So yeah. it's, it's very de democratic or inclusive, if you want. Mm -hmm. And then, I think to touch back on what you were saying about Catholicism, something that we touched on in the class, and it, it, we also touched about this on your in your class, um, was discussing how the the nature of adding saints or including new figures, deities, if you would. Mm -hmm. creates allows this sense of like allows allowed europe to further colon, colonialize people in a way that that other religion if, if you're like if, if you want to spread your religion the best way to get people of different cultures is to say that's that can be a saint too things that we've seen with like de Guadalupe being a figure before her sainthood yes. and, and other things like the, the orishas having their own syncretic disguises if you will Yes, but uh, when but when you read that when you read the the history of how these new saints came, became accepted by officially by the church, mm 
-hmm. it often took years, mm -hmm. centuries. Mm -hmm. So you, you want, I think I prefer to see this plasticity, this flexibility of, of Catholicism as a consequence of the fights, the resistance and, and push from below and from above over centuries mm -hmm. to make some saints or figures, some, some powers, some divine forces mm -hmm. cherished by the downtrodden, by the marginalized or by the oppressed, the oppressed make them like visible and assert them and uh, uh, fight to, to make them official, you know, yeah. sort of to force the church to, to include them. Mm -hmm. So I see, uh, so I, I don't think there's like, like kind of a Machiavellian, like puppet master mm -hmm. uh, sort of strategy in Vatican City. Yeah. Like, oh, let's promote this you know, multiplicity, this multiple, this open framework for religious devotion to all these people we are oppressing, enslaving, etc. Mm -hmm. So they'll be happy. Mm -hmm. No, no, the church imposes the, the, the orthodoxy, mm -hmm. the canon. It's mm -hmm. the people who slowly, yeah, daily, over centuries, Twist that can, you know, mm -hmm. alters it, includes mm -hmm. more people, new images, mm -hmm. changes the rituals. Although, although it's, it's true that there were many, many moments of Machiavellism, if you want, mm -hmm. it is especially when you when you look at in 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 Mexico City, mm -hmm. uh, when you look at the many of the oldest colonial churches that were built exactly on the ruins of former Aztec temples. Mm -hmm. no? yeah. Okay, that's, but I think that's more than Machiavellian. Mm -hmm. That is saying, I mean, there's a Machiavellian or pragmatic, if you want, uh, mm -hmm. aspect. like, okay, now you all are going to venerate our God, the mm -hmm. real God, the winning God, not the, the pagan false one mm -hmm. but at the same time sorry I, I'm, I'm doing the okay, I'll start over the argument <laughs> on the one hand there is a pragmatic a pragmatic or Machiavellian if you want uh, strategy like oh people always come to this place to because this is a sacred place this is the mm -hmm. religious realm where people have to physically be to connect mm -hmm. with their gods great let's just erase yeah. the the old temple and built on top of it a nice Catholic church, mm -hmm. cathedral. So people will continue coming. So we're mm -hmm. like sort of helping them mm -hmm. coming Catholic. But at the same time, uh, you have to think that the, the level of delirious fundamentalism that it takes for a civilization to go to the other civilization, burn, level to the ground their places of cult, mm -hmm. and impose your own, your own figures, mm -hmm. your own images in them, and force yeah. them to, to continue going there. It's a so it's a mix of 
cruelty, imposition, and also pragmatism. But then mm -hmm. over time, popular agency. Like through ritual, music, then daily veneration, transmitting from one generation to another certain songs or praise, etc. A way to force Catholicism to open up more. And, and, and people become, they end up owning their own Catholicism often. Mm. Yeah. But, but this is the history of Catholicism in Latin America is so complicated because you have so many examples of Catholic leaders that really represented those needs and those views of the people they, they work with. Mm -hmm. And many other examples of outright, like, you know, complicity with genocide elites to, just to impose mm -hmm. a, a particular political or economic order. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's the real Catholicism? Yeah. It's both. No? Yeah. I think, I think you touched on something really interesting. You said this idea of like, that people can pursue their own version of Catholicism, so to speak. Yeah. But they and have I to fight for it. They do have to fight for it, obviously. But I think that that touches at a, at a something very similar. I think that we've kind of discussed in, in this current class that a lot of Afro-Cuban religions don't have a text. And this is very different to Catholicism that has a, the Bible. It has a very clear, like, written text. But it, this idea of house religions, so to speak, where any, it, it's dependent upon the practitioner and upon what they do. I, you know, I have... This, these are closed practice things that you get brought into and, and that you become initiated in. But at the same time, I can have one family member that is very, that is like, you do not ask Orisha for money and you do not ask them for these kind of things. You never want to be selfish because these are benevolent figures. And then I have friends that their family are, are asking for this things left and right. And that's just the, the way that they communicate with their Orishas. And I think that's, an interesting point is that like I think we a lot of the way that I tended to view it before this class was like there are like the, the big religions that have their texts and have like a very clear set of rules and then there's like what I what I would do back home so to speak like what I, what I go back to and when I go do for San Lazaro and things like that and then I'm like now now that I look at it I'm like well you can do that with these big religions too people practice these things their own way and that's just how we identify with it no matter what your your written text tells you to do if you if you don't have the the time to pray a certain amount of days or a certain amount of times in a day or if you if you just don't find yourself doing that that's still like no one that's not to say you're not a practitioner you're not a real uh catholic or, or, or muslim or anything like that you're at the end of the day still practicing these like your your version of that religion so i think those things are actually very similar it just took me i think a little bit of time to recognize that no i want to it's a learning process of course mm -hmm. because you know, one grows up learning things or, or assuming things about mm -hmm. what's religion and many other things. And then it takes years to learn that, wait, wait, wait a minute. Who gets to decide what's a religion and what's a superstition? Mm -hmm. What's a proper way of doing the ritual and what's an improper one? Mm -hmm. The same with language, right? What's a language? What's a dialect? Mm -hmm. Who gets to decide that? It's very arbitrary at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The same way that we all talk and we all talk within some series, within some series of rules. Mm. That makes that any language is a language. To call a language dialect, it's the result of an operation to sort of how like turn it into a secondary thing or a, to minimize it. Mm. 
but the mental and cultural operations that the speaker of a dialect does mm -hmm. do no well yes the, the, the all the operations that uh, this person does are the same as someone who speaks english or mandarin or spanish like the big languages mm -hmm. and i think the same is with religion but in the case of religion of course you have the old school like uh european thinkers who believe that only a handful of all all world religions were like the real ones, uh, especially Christianity, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Uh, everything else was a mix of magic, superstition, mm -hmm. deriv derivative versions. Mm -hmm. But when, when, as a musicologist or anthropologist, you go to a place where a, a re religious ritual is performed, mm -hmm. and you know a, a mass. In, in Rome, conducted by the Pope, and a simple Santeria ritual in, in a street in Cuba, or in a house in, in La Habana, they are the same exact same type of operations. Mm -hmm. People bonding with each other, following certain rules, mm -hmm. uttering certain words, singing certain things, mm -hmm. and communicating with, the, with each other and with, with some supernatural force. Mm -hmm. or invoking some cosmic divine force in in in, yeah. in the body and in the space mm -hmm. um so who gets to say one is more important than the other or of course um well who gets to say typically it's like of the state authorities and mm -hmm. then scientists mm -hmm. i think that what you guys are doing at the university is participating in a conversation within the the humanities, the social sciences, mm -hmm. about you know how to open up those rigid categories and mm -hmm. learn to see how we sing, how we experience music, and how we experience religion and belief. Mm -hmm. But uh, but you're right. What's what's fascinating? Okay, going back to the other point, the great point you made. Um, because we scholars are people of the text. Mm. We are all the time in our phones, in our computers, like texting, emailing, reading PDFs, writing papers. We are people mm. of the text. We spontaneously tend to think that cultural phenomena organized around written texts are like more serious, more relevant, and uh, because they are easier to track. You go to an archive, mm. you have tons of texts collected. Mm. That's my my research was like that. I go to archives mm -hmm. and I found find old texts and I organize new texts out of those texts. What's the place for orality there? What's the place for an unwritten intergenerational transmission in a family? Mm -hmm. It's harder to find. Yeah. It's, it's to us to be more attentive to that. And in fact, most of our time as a species, we humans on, on earth, most of our time, we spend it without texts we spend them we spend it uh telling stories to each other mm -hmm. transmitting stories you know from one generation to another among people um, among people from different cultures that began to translate mm -hmm. uh, so i think it, it, in a way 
like our modern technological like entertainment industry which you got you have bands like the ones that we were listening to mm-hmm. uh, performing and being recorded and then I you know I listened to them in on Spotify mm-hmm. instead of being in person in Havana or in New York I don't know where they were mm-hmm. I'm in Atlanta listening on Spotify but I take this technological industrial form of transmission even if it's commodified, even if there's money involved because Spotify is a company and we have to pay mm-hmm. for it. And I take that. And also the texts that we use, the books that mm-hmm. you read in your classes, the ones I read to learn about Cuba, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's just like tools for that broader form of communication. That mm-hmm. is the good old oral. Yeah. One-to-one or, or, or you know, human-to-human mm-hmm. verbal. Yeah, and musical communication. Mm. That's older and vaster, and uh, I think it ultimately is the is the best form of communication. Yeah, it's more. I think it's more personal. I think. Yes, it's when you yeah. really learn. Otherwise, there won't be classrooms. For example, there mm. will be just a, an app where you download the texts, mm-hmm. and then you type, and if you have questions, and they'll read the responses. Why the need to have conversation? Mm-hmm. Even even through Zoom. Mm-hmm. We're telling stories to each other. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, uh, going back to the, yeah, your point about orality, I think it's so, it's so, it's so crazy how the, the songs and the verses we listen in, in these songs mm-hmm. were passed on through centuries mm-hmm. by people with not much, not many means necessarily. Mm-hmm. No? Yeah. I think, I think you kind of, touch on something that I think is like at the core of what I've, I really wanted from this class that I'm in right now, this semester. And also I think this project, which is, I think coming into it. And I think a lot of my life has been spent pursuing this idea that I could prove that these experiences that I have and, and not just the, the, like my son, my experience with Santeria alone, but anything was as valid as anything else. And I think that a lot of that comes from, being a first gen college student, like coming from a, a lower income family, whatever the case may be, and then kind of have being thrusted into what I would say is a very different experience, something like Emory, where a lot of people here are a fa- of of like family of means that have you know have have she, had she, success she, they, for years. They had a different cultural experience yeah. and background, and, yeah. and they behave as like owning the place and naturally mm-hmm. being there. Yes, and I think that I one of the things that I really wanted, and I've been I think a greater struggle for me personally. And I imagine this is similar for America, some of the discussions we've had, which is that you want to be able to say that like every, all of your experiences are, are as valid and I, and you kind of fight for that. And I think that this experience, your classes last year, um, this class, this year, this semester has shown me that like, I should come in with the mindset that they are already inherently at that level, that there is no like, oh, this is better or more like legitimate versus this like i am like the way that we navigate discussing santeria is just as valid so to speak as christianity or or, or catholicism or, or the other major languages in the same way that like my lived experience america's lived experience anyone's lived experience that feels that sense of lesser than it's, it's not that's not the case that this is just existence and i think that that's like at the core of what i want to to get across with with this project and with and just in general, like I feel like one of my major like goals in life is to like get to the point where I realize like okay my ex- like my existence my 
my cubanidad, my being who I am is just as valid, but I don't want to have to argue that to people. I just want to be able to like come to the mindset that I've done that for myself and I feel that way. But I think that's a, a years long process. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but it seems like you're on the, on the right track. <laughs> but um, I don't think we want to take too much more of your time. I think that we've we've had a really good discussion. I really I hope that you enjoyed the song. I I've had an amazing time talking to you. I miss our discussions. Oh, I well, miss I miss the way you speak about music. It makes me feel like <laughs> like I, I I feel like you describe music like in a way that I feel about music. It's just that you have all the words for it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, it took me some years to to collect those words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But as as we were just saying, it's about mm -hmm. collecting words and, and running yeah. through the experience and the, the head and yeah. sharing them. Yes. That was the end of our discussion with uh, Professor Palomino. And I think that kind of leads into one of the first major sources that I thought was very interesting, which was this discussion on the modernity of H. Lawrence Freeman, a 1930s minstrel jazz creator, uh, black artist. And this article was made by David Gutkin in the Journal of American Musicological, sorry, the Journal of the American Musicological Society. One of the things that immediately became clear was this discussion of H. Lawrence Freeman's, Freeman's play Voodoo, which was performed in the Negro Jazz Grand Opera in 1928. The play was originally meant to go on for seven days, and it ended up going on for three days. And at first, that doesn't really make any sense. And then as you continue to read on, you begin to realize that Freeman had this inherent nature to call back to the Italian foundations of opera, Italian opera. And it's something that was really interesting to me the reason that it seemed to fail on both ends of, of, of the racial spectrum at this time were that white, white audience members did not like the idea of a black man catering and trying to replicate this higher, higher form of art while black audiences felt that he was pandering a bit. And that kind of duality and that kind of situation was something that I discussed with, funnily enough, my own mother. And something that she said very explicitly was that Cuban people want to be as close to white people as possible, no matter how black they are. And I've seen this in my own life. I have family members that are physically dark skinned, are, are obviously black people, and yet they just don't want to feel like they're black. And that comes from the centuries of, of colonial, you know, hold that, that Cuba's had over them and the racial hierarchy that exists across all of Latin America, not just um, Cuba alone. But especially in a place like Cuba, where where black people are, are are more prevalent than certain other countries in Latin America, it's something that I noticed is really interesting. Is that if you listen to Viejo Lázaro, it sounds almost like a traditional Western salsa song, and and, and funnily enough, salsa is inherently an African um, genre. It has it has its roots in a lot of African music, but there is something to Viejo Lázaro that sounds, I would say, arguably wider than something you would hear in Babaluaye, Luaye song, which shows just how different you can get a sound to be and how, I think it, if you listen on the surface level, Nanden's song sounds arguably more complex in air quotes, but obviously they both take an insane amount of skill. And I think that's something that we discussed with Palomino and I think that he discussed in general is that the idea of musical 
primitiveness or the idea of music being inherently simple or complex is is very problematic and tends to reinforce racial hierarchies in america i think something that we discussed a bit was how that doesn't really work and how i think you'll see a lot of people push back on that kind of thing especially with like the, the in-text citations that we had with things like baba gangisades's books and kind of discussing san lazaro as a disguise for the inherently black babalu and things like that um if you want to add anything to it um well the first thing that i think about when we talk about like any african background with this theme is back to our class we talk about what it means to be anything afro prefix mm-hmm. yeah um and i just found that a bit alarming not because it's an issue but more because i knew that it's an issue in our cultures because there's a lot of things that to us is very evidently from what had happened in terms of the um, african uh transatlantic slave trade and i think that we always try to step away from that something like hair is something that comes up to me um like curly hair pelo malo and all those kind of topics that comes in our daily conversations that's what I think about when it comes to Afro-Cuban culture specifically. And so that to me was very evident in Baba Raul Canizares' books. Um, and there's a couple of terminology in his books as well. I feel like it's important to dissect, um, specifically when he talks about curses and these like magical aspects within the religion. Um, to me, from my upbringing, Santeria has been kind of like black magic. Um, it has always been something very frowned upon, uh, and it's always been seen as brujería, which is something that is um, very prevalent in my own family, on my mom's side. Um, my mom's side of the family in Mexico has always been constantly apprehended because they do witchcraft, and to them is el magia blanco, which is the clean magic to help people, um, but people around our towns always viewed it in the different aspects so it's very i don't know it's a very difficult subject i believe yeah i think i think that the what you touch on is something that we discussed also throughout the semester which is like this inherent nature of of santeria and also follow later like as we discussed in the semester is like how every person that practices a religion views the next religion over as like the the bad one mm-hmm. and i think that when you see a lot of examples of Palo and what Palo does, there is this sacrificial nature, but there is that same thing in Santeria. But when I talked to my mom, for example, my mom discussed Palo as kind of the, the fringe, as like the extreme. And yet a lot of the practices might be different or they might look a little um, aesthetically different. There is this inherent nature of like, like you said, like Maria Blanco or Lanka, and then this to hurt, in order to help, you must hurt in some way. Um, and so that was something that I thought was really interesting is that when discussing with someone who practices Santeria and does, you know, a lot of the things that aesthetically make up this religion that other people outside of Santeria view as the brujeria, my mom is like, well, there's one, like, one past us is brujeria. What we do is, which shows, I guess, like that hierarchical thing that we were discussing. Um, but I think that's just part of the nature of what, of, of how these kind of things work is that. Santeria is allowed to be, and Espiritismo as well, are allowed to be the closer to white alternative to a lot of Afro-heritage religions, because I'm allowed to say that this Orisha is actually a santo, and that 
this person's actually a white person and they're not a, a black figure. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that at some point that kind of gets at the, at the issue, which is that that shouldn't be happening in the first place. You know, like at the end of the day, Santeria exists as a as a inherently black um, religion. And, and, and I think that there's this weird appreciation that goes on. And I think it's something that reflects Cuban music in general, Cuban culture in general, which is that there is this inherent appreciation of the African roots, but it's always like, well, you know, only so much as to, as that I'm not considered, African, I guess is the way that people view it. I don't know, you brought up a lot of good things. And uh, I think about a lot about Las Botanicas, the ones that we visited. Well, I'm not sure if we consider them Botanicas as extremism as the ones that we see outside of Atlanta or mm. like the ones that we've seen from Miami, um, like Benagos has shown us. Um, but I do think a lot about how the things that are accepted are because of their proximity to whiteness. Um, mm. I think about, for me, for Mexican culture, La Santa Muerte is, uh, is a huge figure. Their figure is very problematic in our, in our culture and it's mostly followed by rural Mexico and by indigenous looking families like I would say mine except mine doesn't really follow it um mm -hmm. but I know a lot of people from my parents's area that do follow Santa Muerte and follow those rituals and do very what my Catholic family would say is very weird and offensive and and just closer to being a demon or being close to the mm -hmm. devil worshiping the devil as they'd say I remember growing up and passing by Las Botanicas and my parents saying that, oh, those are devil worshipers. And then when I finally approached them recently with you, I realized, oh, that, that that's really problematic that they're saying this because this is, this is something that a lot of people follow that should not be recognized as something disrespectful. It is as sacrificial and as, as worthy as um, like Catholicism or any other major religion. Mm -hmm that kind of gets at the at the the like i guess the focus of the issue which is that there is this like because you even even like you said you, this is something that your family does believe in certain saints and then there are like things that they don't believe in and then you're learning them as as like devil worshipers for example or for me it's like la ruja things like that like people that sacrifice and then it's it's crazy to think about how like well i'm i'm so much closer to them than i am to people that don't practice these at all and yet I'm, I'm, my family has gone through lengths to kind of ostracize, or people have gone through lengths to ostracize these, these pra practitioners, especially when you consider that, like, like you said, they are predominantly practiced by people that have you know, darker skin tone, the, the proximity to whiteness kind of falls away. And I think that's kind of the, coming back to the musical examples that we're focusing on, that gets at some, one of the things that I noticed, one of the things that I discussed with my mom, which was that, you know, we listened to those two songs and I've heard El Viejo Lázaro countless times throughout my life. Like Viejo Lázaro plays at every San Lázaro. I'm almost certain it's going to play tonight at by you no know, clock strikes midnight. I'm hearing that song. And that's not a problem. That's amazing. I love the song, but I've never heard Baba Luaye, um, that, that rendition of it or that. I guess that that much of a Africanidad to the song, then I have like, by looking for it, I had to go search for it. And I think that that's probably not, you know, intentional on the, on the part of my family, but I think it does get at a point of how a song that sounds arguably more ritualistic and more and more communicable with, with these deities is sidelined 
most likely due to the fact that it sounds African, it sounds a little less Hispanic in nature and more non-Western. But but I think that that's that's the whole point of this project is figuring out how this reflects you know the culture and how this song that has three drums and vocals, which is inherently a, a very African sounding song, has kind of not I've never I've literally never heard it until recently. I mean, last year in Palomino's class, we spoke about tango being used as a cultural identity for Argentina because a lot has happened. A lot of mm -hmm. shit went down and that happens in every country. Like every country tries to redeem itself by using some like artistic mm -hmm. way of redeeming themselves internationally, right? Mm -hmm. And tango has functioned that way for Argentina. Do you think that that's functioned in the same way for this song? Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that yeah. reflects that? I, um, I'm not sure about exactly for this song, but I do think that there is this inherent nature to for the most of the cuban music that makes it out of the island and into like international years comes from comes from a a salsa perspective it's taken until very recently obviously years have changed reggaeton is arguably the biggest genre right now but even i would say african sounding or more black um sounding songs for orishas are something that I think I've heard, but I couldn't trust that anyone else has heard. Like, it's one of those things that I think you have to be in the practice to hear, or you have to be very closely tied back to the island to hear. The most of the music that makes it out, although being from Black creators, is almost always sounding of a more acceptable palette. And I, I think the best example of that, something that I've noticed recently, is that Cuban artists that can are fortunate enough to collab with larger artists will almost always just sound like a regular reggaeton copy of like, I would say Bad Bunny, a non-Black creator, for example. And part of that is due to the fact that Bad Bunny is the, the biggest artist on the planet. But I think another part of that is due to I like not wanting to bring out a, a more African sounding or more, you know, further away from white sounding song to the, to the mainstream. Um, to, in order to find those types of, those types of musical examples, you kind of have to search for it a lot more, I would say. And also part of that is the closed nature of the island and things like that. But that's just, that's something that I've noticed is that what I think Cuba culturally exports is an inherently white genre of music that I don't think reflects the nature of the, of the, the island and the nature of the culture of the island, um, especially not, at least in my family. And my family is not predominantly black at all so it is, it is something i think about it's really unfortunate because it seems like like i can see a benefit to making for example the music a bit more mainstream mm -hmm. because it it can cater to more people and it can reach a bigger audience making it a gateway to something more meaningful right and i think that's how espiritismo functions but it's unfortunate that once you, when like some followers that end up in espiritismo just end up there and, and just end up marginalizing every other more extreme, as they'd say, mm -hmm. um, um, beliefs like palo. Um, so I think that that just is a trend within any aspect yeah. that's seen as heavily African. I think it's it's hard because it's one of those things that I feel like there is a person to blame and it's just like, there is a thing to blame and it's like the centuries of, of you know of racial hierarchy and ostracism but it, it is one of those things that i noticed like 
there, there is no one to blame as like a singular person right now. Everyone is just a product of that system. And there are people that break down that system. Yet I would say that there are things that kind of work against it. I would argue that the most famous human person ever is Celia Cruz. And Celia was a proudly black woman who never really put away the fact that she was black. She was proud and loud about who she was and her heritage and her skin tone, especially in at a time when that was not, you know, as as accepted as it might be today. And yet Celia like still is and still will, will be for, for years probably the most famous Cuban export ever. And and it's funny to think about because that also brings in, I guess, another aspect of of what we're getting at here, which is that like Celia was an exile. And so much of the Cuban identity that we know of in the US is the Cuban exile experience. There is a, a inherently a, a, an aspect of what happens on the island is very different from what happens here. And while there might be the same logistical aspects of it, the steps and the things that you do, especially for things like Santeria, there is also this inherent difference that 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 comes with not being on the island. And, and you know, I think that that's just another aspect of it. When discussing with my mom, my mom said things like my grandma, her grandmother, my great grandmother just made it sound like practices on the island were so much more every day. And that when, when you came to the U.S., it became a little bit more of a special occasion. And while you can go to church weekly and, and go to like the, the church of Babaloye and things like that and go monthly, the 17th and everything, back on the island, things were a little more, I guess, accepted. And I think that, that comes with the nature of this being a different, a different thing, not just different in terms of it being an Afro heritage religion, but also it being from a different country and practiced predominantly in Cuba, especially at the time when my mom was younger, that was like a big deal. Like you kind of practiced at home and that idea of like a home religion became more of like a, it's like you have to practice. There's no way that you're going to practice outside of the house. Um, and now I feel like it's a little more everywhere. I'm almost certain tomorrow I'm going to see people walking, crawling all their way to the church. And that's, that's just a little more, I think that the, the area around here has become a little more accepting of that, of that nature. But it definitely was something that I thought about is like, yeah, this is a this has taken years. And I don't think that it's ever going to be the same as it is on the islands, because the island, that's just how it is. Like, it's so much more mainstream. It's a lot to dissect. Um, <laughs> do you feel because we talked a lot in class, well, maybe not a lot, but we talked about authenticity mm-hmm. and something I've always wondered that I've never really asked you about is do you feel like your Cuban identity is not as authentic because you've never been to the island and because you mm-hmm. know in your mind there might not be any time soon that you'd be able to to see mm-hmm. the island or go into? Um, it's weird. I think when I was a kid, when I was younger, I was a little more insecure about being Cuban. And then I think as I've gotten older and I've studied a lot more about my culture, I realized that there is inherently a second identity in being Cuban American. There, there is, as much as it is a thing that you want to call back to home, and or Celia used to talk about wanting to go back to her island and, and going back home, and she was unfortunately not able to, to do it for years, but eventually she was. But anyways, there is this inherent, I guess, dichotomy that like you live, the, there's the Cuban experience on the island, like the Cuban identity on the island, and then there's this weird new cuban american experience predominantly in places like miami and florida and, and new york and 
I think at a time I was definitely a little more insecure and I felt like, yeah, I'm not as, I guess I'm not authentic, especially not being born on the island. And then now I've realized like, I don't have the island experience, but I have the Cuban American experience. And that's equally as valid. And I think to make a big stretch here, I think that kind of reflects the nature of what we discussed with Palomino, which is that we came at these these examples of of, of Cuban identity, Cuban music, and real like with the idea that they were equally as valid as white music, as Western music, um, which I guess reflects that's just one of those big uh I guess like metaphorical stretches that I want to make is that there is this this theme of legitimacy, like inherent legitimacy that I think I would have argued didn't exist. And now I realize like not only do they exist, that I'm already thinking in the way that they do, like not necessarily like arguing that they should exist. Like my my experience is just as legitimate as someone on the island's experience. They're just very different experiences. Sorry, that was very heartwarming, <laughs> but um Oh my god, I don't just want to brush over it. That's it, yeah. it feels it's very nice to hear that you feel very validated because of it. And it's unfortunate that you feel the need to have to educate yourself enough to feel authentic enough or to feel valid enough. I, I share that same sentiment because I've never been to Mexico. Not that I can't, I just haven't. And I think mm -hmm. at this point it's been uh, like a personal reason why I haven't. It feels almost like a protest. Um, mm -hmm. but it's definitely not the same fight. And um it's nice to hear that there is a huge Cuban presence in Miami to the point where it's considered mini Cuba, little Cuba, mm -hmm. or there's mm -hmm. just so many, like, I feel like Cuban figures from Miami that I've always mm -hmm. heard of, like Ana Maria Polo, like I adore her. I love her. <laughs> I wish I could be her. Um, and having classes like um, Professor Espenago's class, it's, it's very nice, very soothing to hear. Anyways, going back to my follow-up question, do you feel the same way about Santeria like have you ever felt that it has been illegitimate because it is practiced in the U.S. or do you feel because you've you have your your grandparents and you have older figures around you that it's more legitimate because of them or how do you how do you feel about that yeah so I think it's it's been less about the experience in the U.S. I think those things have been tied like the idea that uh, it's just as legitimate it's just like the Cuban-American Santeria experience but I think to expand one of the things that I do or I did for a time feel like it was a little not as legitimate or not as whole was the the issue that I had with Santeria is inherently black and and they are Orishas and things like that and I think when I would talk to not just my family but other families and other people there was this like I said this weird like oh yeah we appreciate our black roots but then this inherent pushing away of the black identity that comes with it. And I think that that always kind of nagged me when I was younger and, and it still does. And it's one of those things that I I would always ask my mom about. And I asked her again for this project, which was like, why do, why do, why is it like that? And I think that my mom kind of wanted to give me a big picture answer in like a one or two sentences. And I think that the, the way she kind of said it to, to paraphrase was that Cuban identity being so closely linked to like the Spanish people that were there has caused this inherent like hierarchy of race that caught like that means that while there is so much that is African and is black of the island and the experience off the island as well, it can never receive the same praise that it probably deserves because it's just going to be seen as like, yeah, we love our black history and everything that it means, 
but like uh, it's not white and so i think that's kind of the way that my mom put it is that it's definitely one of those things that's like yeah we love and we appreciate this religion and i practice it and i and i'm a part of it and there's santos in my house and there's and i'm gonna go to a, a party for la vispera today and all this stuff but at the same time there is like they're like our racist I ideas that that plague the the identity that plague the, the culture there is this inherent like ah like ah man and i think it's weird because you realize like these are african religions these are african figures and we're and nine out of ten times my family will call Babaluaye san lazaro but they know that it's Babaluaye, and they know that san lazaro is like the white disguise i guess they just think it's more palatable it's more acceptable and i think that's definitely not okay and that's not a good way to think about it but it's something that i think is so hard stuck in the identity and the way of being that i i've grown up around that i noticed like oh yeah we're not being correct with this like we're not even really praising the right figures if we're saying san lazaro or like gore instead of saying who they are okay i've had similar sentiments with i think my own belief not as deeply because it's not very obvious that for us there's a dichotomy between two very different cultures or backgrounds so I I've, I don't think I would have ever known how to navigate that either because I think now that I'm in college I've been able to go into like Mexican culture and where it comes from where where does this huge pride and catholicness come from and so my first year with Palomino, he actually brought us to this lesson of Tonantzin. And Tonantzin, if you don't know, um, is La Virgen de Guadalupe, the Virgin Mary, like someone we love and like she's our patron saint. She's like our everything, our mother, our queen, everything. Um, but when he told us about the story that like the story of Juan Diego, which is the origin story of how this indigenous man found her in El um, Tempeyac on this like hill or whatever, we talk about 12 de diciembre and Nochebuena. It's it's a story that everyone knows. And so to me, to hear that something like that was actually an image that was made to, to, to be palatable towards the indigenous people, it kind of hurt me a lot. And as years have went by, I think it's like my second, third year, like having this in my mind, it's like very painful. And so I finally brought it up to my parents and I brought it up specifically to my mother because I knew she'd be able to understand it a little bit more without being so close-minded about it. I asked her, how did she feel about that? And I like explained to her the whole lesson and I told her, hey, this is Tonantzin, this is the Virgin Mary. These are how they connected and these are how the Spanish painted the Virgin Mary so she could be deemed as someone that the indigenous people had to look up to so they could leave back their Aztec uh, uh, beliefs. And my mom was just very, she was very shocked as, as I was. Um, and she, I think she still kind of battles with how to think about it. Um, so I just, I can't imagine how, how straining that is to your own personal values and beliefs because now I'm here and I, I still love the Virgin Mary as always, but it's still very, it's very painful to know, okay, there's this really, really harsh background that went into like slowly believing into this person that is godly like for us. All that is to say that that is really crazy. <laughs> I think you kind of, from what you're saying, I think it's crazier to think about how, and I don't know how to phrase this but i guess i would see it as like a greater success of 
colonializing belief systems in your case because in the in the at least in our case no one forgot who Yemaya and Oshun and Shango and Baluaye are no one no one didn't know you know what i mean and it took a lesson that like it's it, it, it's arguably more impactful to realize these these colonizers successfully just re like whitewashed a, 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 a indigenous figure and that's kind of insane to think about it's just like and I, but I also think that gets at the point of like true like i guess ignorance or true you know not not knowing versus this like weird willful ignorance that human human society goes through which is like yeah like i said like you know these things are like there are black figures and not only that that's their original name are these are these african names and then just being like ah i don't you know i don't gotta say them i don't have to i'm not gonna praise them but it's like who are we, if you're not, like why not praise their real name these are at the end of the day like deities and i think that it gets at a, at a crazy distinction of how like for your in your case like in mexico's case it's like a a, a, a much more holistic colonializing of a figure versus in the cuban case where it feels almost like haphazard it feels almost like uh yeah yeah but like use the same one like just just say the white one almost and it's weird because we do it like my family does it all the time and i can say like I, they all know this the, the orisha's names but it's like we just you know we'll say the other one gotta like go to it like i i could ask my mom like why don't you say yamaya and she'll just be like oh that's just what you do like that's just the way that it is I guess now that we have this class or we've had this class, have you changed your terminology for Santeria? Like, have you have you tried correcting, not correcting, I don't want to say correcting for your mother because this is yeah. some, a way she grew up. Um, but do you think you'd slowly start implementing this ideology that like, oh no, we we need to start accepting what the way it is? It's weird. I, I, it's, I still say San Lazaro. I realize that I say San Lazaro, and I think that's just because, like, I've, it's been you know twenty years of my life saying San Lazaro. Uh, but with the other, with almost every other Santo or with every other Orisha, I'm not saying the the Catholic name. I don't even really say Gary like Goda anymore. I just say like Yemaya, and I say all of the saints. Um, I say all the Orishas' names, and it's interesting because my mom does so too. But when I talk to like grandparents, they tend to say a lot of like the Catholic names. Um, and, and, and that's one of those things that I think comes from, I guess, a, a generational difference that like, like I said before, you know, you, you had to be as close to white as you could, especially for them coming to this country as immigrants. That, that I've talked to them about different topics and, they, and they, there is this, this theme of like, you don't speak Spanish outside, you speak English, you, like like things like that. So I think that that became like immediately clear, like their reasonings are that they need to be as American as possible. And while there isn't, I, you could say like San Lazaro, but for them, it's like they need to be as, as close to white, whatever white means. And in this case, it's but just don't say the Orisha's names. And I think that they, they, they definitely know the Orisha's names, but I don't think that they would call, like, I don't think they're, they're going to go tonight and say Baba Luaye. They're definitely going to say San Lazaro. Um, but my mother has always said the, the Orisha's names and I always always said the Orisha's names by, by proxy. Yeah, I think this, this class has definitely caused me to be a lot more inquisitive about Santeria and my family's experience with Santeria. I feel like I go to my mom now and I'm just like, 
like why do you think this is the way it is like with this project for example and a lot of the time she'll just say like i don't know like i just that's just how it is and i think that that's like that's a reasonable answer i think that that gets at a point of like these power structures and these systems have been around forever and that it's so ingrained in the way that in my this example my mom thinks about things that she doesn't even really have a response as to why certain things are the way they are i wonder why she just says i don't know because i mean i understand that maybe those questions are questions that she never considered mm-hmm. and that maybe they're just so groundbreaking to her and everything she understands you should try asking her those questions maybe in like a few years later because mm-hmm. i i plan on doing similar things with my mother not as a as an experiment or as of my mother as something yeah. to be studied but just because i'm genuinely curious um because i i've been taking a lot of classes at like focus on my heritage or Latinx identities. And um, we were talking about the Virgin Mary and my history of Mexico class. And that evening I asked my mother, well, Mexico is so in love with the Virgin Mary. We love her so much. She's literally right here. She's right here. (laughs) I have her every corner. She's in like every car we own. She's in our names. She's everywhere. I cannot Mm. avoid her, which I love her. Great. But I asked my mother, okay, why does every man like my father love her so much yet are so machista? Like they're mm-hmm. so, they disrespect women. Mm-hmm. They call them names. They act like they're slaves. They disregard mm-hmm. them. Yet the Virgin Mary is the biggest figure. For us, she is bigger than Jesus almost. Mm-hmm. And, and it's understandable. So I just, when I asked my mother, like, why? Why are they like this? Mm-hmm. she just couldn't answer and she sounded like she was gonna cry so <laughs> I wonder if you've had similar uh experiences where she where yeah. your mother maybe is like so perplexed she doesn't even know what to say yeah I think the one that I think of I asked her about um Ogun being this deity this figure and if to, for complete honesty my family has never really followed Ogun like like heavily but it is he's still one of the major Orisha in, in the Cuban belief, like the Cuban belief system, and he's so much bigger around the world. I asked her about how this strong black man can be seen as a major deity or major orisha, and at the same time, like the amount of widespread racism that exists in Cuba, especially towards stronger black men that can be seen as potential threats, air quotes, like that kind of stereotypical racist ideology. And I think when I ask my mom questions like that, she has an answer that she wants to give. And then she has like the the knee jerk response to say, like, I just don't I don't know. And I think that I don't know really means like I don't want to go on this discussion right now. But I think that well, I've kind of pressed her on it a few times and I've pressed her on the, just the way that Cubans are racist and Cuban society treats, like I said, like it's African roots. And my mom kind of discusses, you know, el que no tiene de Congo tiene de Caravali that kind of thing and and how like how weird it is that people that are inextricably linked with african roots whether that be genetically or whether it be culturally are so against it like are so against being african and being having that in 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 their blood so to speak my mom has said and i quote it's really dumb (laughs) uh she really she doesn't like the idea that like you can be so i guess hypocritical in a way 
Um, but it, it's also interesting to think about how every aspect, and they get back to music how, for this project, how every aspect of Cuban culture reflects that that weird like dichotomy. Celia has songs like La Rumba Me Está Llamando, like the idea that rumba is is calling to you. It's in your blood. It's moving around. It, it's it's personified, and yet rumba isn't a isn't a white sounding word. It's not a white it's not a white thing. Rumba is inherently black. Celia was black, black, yet people that I know could listen to that song and then go be racist the next day, and and or, or go be you know critique this person for this or, or or critique someone's skin color, and it's like it doesn't allow people to fully appreciate the art that they love so much because it's like you're never gonna view it out of the lens of your racist eyes, um, and I guess that kind of gets at the the way that you were talking about you know men loving La Virgen and still being so misogynistic it's like you're never gonna i i and at least in my eyes people that act in that way are, are never going to appreciate those things with the fullest intent but at the same time one could argue that that's just those things are separate like religion and the way i act at home are separate but i, I don't know that's that's one of those things that i wanted to tackle with this project and it's hard because you know you can't change the world in a day but it, but yeah it's like wow how weird <laughs> how weird this this uh our society is I think I think that's coming closer to a, a resolution mm-hmm. and that resolution being I don't want to say just accept the world the way it is but I think mm-hmm. us understanding that it is this way mm-hmm. and that we're recognizing it and us recognizing it will help develop a better ideology as we continue to have our own families and our own children I I hope that someday we'd both be able to to educate them and not only from our upbringing but also implement what we've learned in college like these classes I feel like have been very integral to how I how I believe now how I feel how how I wake up every day how I how I pray to to my own saints and how I view other saints that are not of my own proximity in my own household I guess and I I feel like that's that's huge progress and to me it's a sense of relief that I can now walk by botanicas and I will not say oh esos son del diablo I, mm-hmm. I will not say that to my children. I will not even think about it twice. I've never even thought about it. Not even mm-hmm. when my parents would tell me that because I knew that just because it is something that I'm not aware of, but because I'm not, I'm not close to it because I was not raised to it because I was, I, I, I would think a different thing doesn't mean that I, I need to just demonize them, that I need mm-hmm. to associate them immediately with El Diablo. I, I want to give like a big kind of concluding statement for this project. And I think that something that I've been thinking about a lot is that this class and Professor Penagos and everything that we've discussed has really led me to want to pursue to like fully initiate again and like fully go through, um, not again, sorry, fully initiate and like kind of go through everything because it is something that I hold near and dear to my heart. And I think it's the one, it's one of the few examples of religion that doesn't, has always stuck in my life. It's one of those things that like my belief system has always been built around. And it's hard because as a queer man in some people's eyes, I don't get the chance to do it fully. And it's something that I have to think about a lot. Like, I, with the, you know, hoping in this project, like, hey, like, I can come out with something that'll answer and give me, like, the magic, like, yes, you could do this. But at the same time, like, something that we, I feel like we've touched on this class is, like, yeah, this is a house religion. And not in the sense that it needs to be practiced in your house, but that it doesn't have a, a written set of rules, like, that is so strict. Every practitioner practices in their own way. And I want to be able to, when I have kids, be like this is a thing and however i practice it then is how they'll learn it and if they want to pursue it later 
and they go through their own experience and, and, and things like that. They practice it completely differently. I think what I want and what I hope that this project shows is like, yeah, this inherently can be yours. And yes, it has its rough outline of rules. It has things that you should do and things that, you know, it's basis. But I think part of the enjoyment and part of what makes this so special is that I'm going to be in a house tonight celebrating and worshiping San Lazaro in one way. And the house down the street is going to be celebrating and worshiping in a completely different way. And that those are both equally as valid and equally, equally as legitimate. And I think that that's something that I've been kind of grappling with, not just for this project, but I guess for the entire time that I've existed as a, as someone that practices in this religion is like, how much of this is valid? Like how much of this am I allowed? Um, and now I'm realizing like, I shouldn't view it as, as such a finite number. This is my, this is my own belief. So yeah, I think that this project has really helped kind of open my eyes to that. Yeah, you you touched on a couple of things that Palomino actually does um, bring up and I guess our conversation, one of them being, he spoke about Catholicism and he said, nowadays people are creating and integrating their own beliefs into this um, Catholicism that they have. And I, I don't want to think about it as just Catholicism, but I inherently do just because that's how I grew up. And I see that. I see that very presently. And I think I think it's something that we that we need to accept because there's things that are always changing. There are things that I unfortunately do not like knowing that there's this heavy racist and homophobic ideology behind Catholicism and how there's so much stigma behind so many issues that I am passionate for. So it really hurts to think that that's that my belief system has been used as a way to defend these these horrible ideologies so I think it is important for us to recognize yes that these these ideologies are our own and we can make it our own and it's really unfortunate that these that there's this set of rules that are being told to us as if they're like strict but in reality they're not and another thing that Palomino says is something that I feel like this tackles um, and he says we as scholars are people of text and tend to put more emphasis on information from text and neglect orality. But we spend most of our time not with text, but mostly talking to one another. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I am. I, um, I don't know. I feel like that. And he's discussing music in that, in that regard. But it reflects so much of like the idea that like religion and by extension existence is so subjective and is so malleable for I think for a, a lack of a better word. And I think that the malleability of something like Santeria is known. I mean, like we said, it's a it's a home religion that has each practitioner's rules. You know, they have their own set of rules. But I feel like like what you're saying is almost kind of larger than that, which is that all religion and all things like that are inherently malleable. And I think that we can you see that with anybody. Like not every Muslim person or every Christian or every Catholic person thinks of the same exact religion. It doesn't practice in the same exact way. I mean, there's hundreds of denominations, but on top of that, there's like millions of people that just practice these things differently. And so I think that it's better to embrace that malleability and that inherent subjectivity instead of trying to kind of pin one down. And I think that's the way that I was coming into this course was like with my own preset understanding of this religion and uh, these religions and being like, yeah, like these like, even if I wasn't right, I was like, that's just how I think of them. And now I realize like the experiences that I've had with each of these religions is just one of the millions that people might have. And that's just something that I have to understand is like, they aren't going to be the same. It's a little bit scary to think about how, how fragile um, these beliefs are. 
because I, I always leaned on these ideologies coming from an institute or like a mm-hmm. religion and this Bible, although I've never read it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always leaned on that. Okay, this is right. And this is the way it is. And that's it, period. But to think that like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe we should question them. Maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't necessarily be so, so ingrained with this and just say that, yes, this is right. And that's it. No questions. Or if I don't do it this way, I'm wrong. And that's it. No, we can't just exit it out that way. And it's really, it's really mind boggling. I would say, um, very painful to think about it any other way, but I think it's necessary. It's hard because I feel like I want the project to end on like this huge, like, you know, big, momentous occasion like kind of thing where i'm like and this is like the fruits of our labor i think studying it is like the first step in bettering the system bettering the way that it exists and so like while we might not come out of this with a hard set yeah like this is it we can come out of with a a better appreciation with with a better understanding because at the end of the day that's all we can really hope for because I think it would be dumb to try to change the way we view, like to change the way that the world understands these things. I think it's just better to know that you put in a good try, that put in a good study and a good focus on it and put like a, put, we, you know, placed our lens on the, our magnifying lens on Babalu and San Lazaro. And what started as for me, something that discussed like racial tension has kind of just turned into like, a, oh, like I just have to appreciate how it exists and how I exist within, um, within Santeria, which I, th- I feel like has happened. I feel like I've, I'm very happy with where things are. Oh, that's that's a relief to hear. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that you didn't come to this class with an ideology of, oh, I already know everything. It's going to be a smooth class. Mm-hmm. Although you probably did have that in the very, very back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it's very it's very nice to hear that you had an open mind, that you knew that this would potentially deepen your relationship with your past or with your your history, your culture, your identity, every every aspect of yourself. And it's it's very mm. nice to hear because I I that that's why I went into Latin American Caribbean studies because I wanted to also fulfill these curiosities and and feel like I am deeper within my own identity and to not only feel that I am as valid as any other Latin American, but also to to understand everyone else around me. Mm-hmm. And I think that th- I've gained some of this with this class and and being mm-hmm. with you. Yeah, I think I'm very happy with how this project's turned out. It might not have been the contained, like, musical breakdown that I, I had originally envisioned it being. It's definitely become, I think, much better than I could have expected. And I think that thanks not only to Palomino, but thanks to you, then it's definitely been a, a good, like, breakdown of, of exactly the kind of stuff that I, that I wanted, but I don't think I knew how to articulate at the time that, of, like, starting this project. Because definitely, I think it's definitely been more than I could have expected, but also exactly what I expected and exactly what I wanted. It's just that I couldn't, I guess I just couldn't, I didn't know how to visualize that. And now we're here. And now I'm like, yeah, this is actually great. This is exactly what I wanted to be. Yeah, it feels almost anthropological. Um, so <laughs> yeah. just, because I, I think we, we've allowed this, this project to just shape, shape the study in itself to just mm. let it bring up itself and then let for example Palomino who I feel like is an actual anthropologist and he probably considers himself an anthropologist at this point um I feel like he he shaped the conversation in different ways that I just did not think he would and he it's so it's so interesting because I, I do feel like at the end of the day I achieved what I wanted which is to understand you and to to appreciate you more not that I didn't before but I think it just it it creates 
something that I feel like is so much more valuable than anything else.